Rob Isbitz. Welcome back to Investing Experts. Always great to have you on Seeking Alpha. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thank you for having me back. Let's uh let's let's get into 2023 as it closes and 2024 as it prepares to begin. Indeed, indeed. We're hitting the end of December. You just said before I hit record, this is you're calling it the year of living dangerously. So Talk to us about that. Un- unpack the danger and hopefully a, a bit of hope in there. Funny, I because I, I've been asked to do a lot of kind of uh, you know review preview kind of things for for some different places, and I kind of put them all together to try to give you the best of on this uh, discussion. Uh, um, so one of the things I did was I put together well. Uh, I wouldn't call it the twelve days of Christmas, but as we're recording this, you know we're we're approaching that time of year, what I did is I put together a list from one to 12. And each of these is a number that has some significance, at least as of a couple of weeks ago, for the year 2023. And if you don't mind, I will race through them. So uh, one, one is uh, the number of trillions of dollars in consumer credit card debt. It's actually 1.08 trillion. Uh, Is it going to matter next year? Depends who you ask. And that's kind of a theme of of the rest of this conversation today. Two, two heartbreaking war zones, obviously Ukraine and the other one, uh, Israel Hamas, uh, hasn't really affected markets other than suddenly. But let's see what happens beyond that. Uh, Hopefully nothing. Uh, Three, Three straight poor years for bond prices. Now, bonds have rallied very sharply in just the last few weeks, but uh, generally speaking, it's been a rough three-year period for bonds and, frankly, for a lot of stocks as well. Uh, Four, uh, there were four more Fed rate hikes following the seven we had in 2022. Uh, Five, five percent Treasury bill interest rates. And by the way, uh, one uh, article concept I have coming up. Uh, do people even realize that T bills out to one year are still well over five percent as we record this? Um, so, uh, you know, with all the uh, other drop, I mean, that, you know, that's that's telling me something. I don't know what it is yet. I just know it's not normal. Okay, and if you know anything about a yield curve inversion. Um, where where longer rates are supposed to be uh, higher than shorter rates, that part is not following along just yet. What do you, if I if I can interject for a second, what do you think uh, it might be telling you? If you don't have the exact answer, what are what are some of your senses telling you? My my best guess is that it is uh, the continued concerns over the U.S. government being able to fund its debts in the short term. Because so much of that debt, that 30, well, I mean, it's been a couple of days, so it's probably grown by another half a trillion, so I may be off. Uh, but, you know, we're somewhere in the 32, 33 trillion in, in, in debt. And I just, I just don't think that goes away without some weird things happening beyond what we've already seen. In the meantime, uh, now, I think what that's telling you is that's what the government has to offer in order to attract buyers. We've had some awful, awful, I mean, like practically failed bond auctions, not in the short-term stuff and a little bit longer. Um, and uh, look, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've seen uh, 
interest rates across the board go shooting higher, started last year and then continued in 2023 here. Uh, now they're shooting down. Uh, I just don't think that this is over. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not so sure that inflation is over for this cycle, but we'll probably get into that a little bit. So that's one through five. Uh, you know, I'm an ETF uh, geek, so uh, I follow this, and I, but I think it has implications for all investors. Uh, just like the S&P and the NASDAQ are very crowded at the top, same with the ETF business. The top six issuers of ETFs hold more than 85% of assets. I'm talking U.S. ETFs. And so it's his same type of dominance. And as you know, and maybe as listeners know from following you know, SunGarden Investment Publishing on, um, on Seeking Alpha, uh, we cover ETFs broadly and market strategy, but we have a special kinship with the overlooked, the undercovered, the under-the-radar ETFs. And I have a feeling that in the coming years, uh, I think in part because we're going to give it a lot more attention, um, that uh, I think that may even out a little bit. Um, seven. Well, that one's easy. The Magnificent Seven Stocks. That's what the industry has called them. Uh, you know, they have dominated stock performance, uh, really in a way we haven't seen since the late 90s. Uh, let's hope that it doesn't turn out the way it did after 1999, uh, because those of us who are old enough to remember and manage money through it, uh, which I did, uh, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, all down years for the S&P and all down years for the NASDAQ, each year, the loss was more than 30%. Yes, kids, that's possible, uh, because when you lose 33%, you have $67 left. You can still lose 33% of that and so on and so on. It never goes away. Uh, eight. Eight is for mortgage rates. They're down now, but they did hit 8%. And uh, so that's kind of the other side of the coin. You know, if you're a saver, 5% T-bills are awesome. Uh, if uh, you're uh, somebody that is trying to buy a new home, well, this is why the housing market is frozen. Uh, this year and why home builders by building new stuff um, are are uh, uh, having a little better time in part because they're working out massive incentives. Uh, nine, um, uh, again, just an ETF point. Uh, ETFs are nine trillion dollars now globally. Um, and uh, for every dollar that leaves a mutual fund, uh, it's probably going into an ETF. Uh, I say that sort of off the cuff, but generally speaking, if you look at the numbers, it looks a lot like that. So uh, I really do believe that uh, uh, that ETFs are probably the best complement that a stock picking or stock and bond type investor has has ever had. I know we won't cover that too much here because we're sticking mostly to macro, but um, you know, I, I I do believe that. And nine trillion nine trillion dollars can't be wrong, isn't that what they say? And and projections are it's going to grow to 20, 25, 30 over the decade. Uh, so the last three, 10. Um, 10 year bond, specifically the volatility. It was just off the charts this year. And it made stars out of some previously pedestrian bond ETFs. Uh, bonds are acting a lot more like stocks. Uh, TLT is an ETF that uh, became kind of the new poster child for, uh, hey, I like bonds and rates are going down, so I want to make a lot of money. 
And in reality, TLT covers 20 to 30-year treasuries, but the 10-year is the benchmark. It's what so many things are tied to. And uh, that type of volatility, again, says to me, okay, there's something different going on here. Um, and we haven't really seen the lag effect of 11 Fed rate hikes. So um, uh, the other thing to keep in mind before I get to the uh, uh, the last uh, two on this list is that, you know, the lag effects, okay, the consumer at least, well, definitely in Europe, I would say almost certainly in Asia and clearly in the U.S., just, you know, we're, we're such a... Uh, here, here in the U.S., it's um, uh, there, there's so much income inequality that uh, you know, you've got people investing in the stock market. They're doing fine uh, and locking in you know five percent T-bill rates all year. Uh, but then you've got uh, a massive part of the population that isn't participating in this, and they're already feeling the lag effects of all those rate hikes. Um, and, you know, I'll throw this out there just in case we can come back to it sometime next year and say, oh, you know, Rob, Rob called this because, um, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to be wrong because, you know, you get used to it when you do this for 37 years. Um, you know, here's a sneaking suspicion I have. OK, uh, the government needs to uh, keep refunding. And better it does it at lower rates than higher rates. The second thing is, it may be that the Fed knows something that maybe the market doesn't know yet about liquidity going through 2024. Because fundamentals aside, if markets dry up and there's limited liquidity, Janet Yellen, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary, just said this a few months ago that uh, you know the the liquidity conditions for tr the treasury market were, were were pretty awful. Well, if the uh, sort of bastion of uh, uh, high quality, low risk investing, the U.S. Treasury market is getting more and more illiquid, or should I say, less liquid, uh, that is a problem, and it has ripple effects. Um, so the last two, eleven and twelve. Um, and this is as of a couple of weeks ago, it's changed with the recent rally. But uh, as of uh, early December, of the 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial uh, Average, 11 were down. 11. Um, and I still believe the Dow is you know, the best index out there because it doesn't have the heavy weighting uh, sort of top heaviness that, that the others do. And then finally, uh, 12. Uh, 12 is the number of Fed board members who talk too much. Uh, that's my opinion. But I remember back when the Fed just did its job quietly, financial advisors, investors, we didn't have to constantly mark our calendars for when somebody was scheduled to give like a mundane talk at an economics club. Uh, so to me, that kind of sets up for why 2024 is the year of living dangerously because we have a lot of markets at the crossroads in terms of the fed thank you for that rundown uh in terms of the fed talking too much i i imagine it's basically a product of our ever never-ending news cycle and that it's just constantly having to feed the machine and so everything is talked about and pondered about and uh you know commented on 
But there's also these questions, you know, people looking at the market, investors looking at the market, prognosticators looking at the market in terms of what the Fed is promising and then maybe walking back a little bit and other people are maybe trying to subvert expectations. And you alluded to that a bit. How should, and there's definitely, I think, a um, an overwhelming opinion about, you know, rates being cut in the coming year. How do you think investors should be parsing the the never-ending news cycle, the never-ending comments? How should they be parsing that and how should they be planning for it? Well, if you don't mind, I will answer that as part of, let's say, a a broader approach to what I would call investing for modern markets. Because you you bring up a very good point. I mean, I sometimes I you know I sit there watching the the Fed obsession or Fed session, maybe if we can get that trending, I don't know. I wonder to myself, like, isn't there anything else going on? <laughs> Aren't there companies, you know, doing business? I mean, it doesn't all revolve around what overnight interest rates are, which is all the Fed is really responsible for anyway. Everything else is 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 a narrative, you know. And uh, and that is absolutely because of the 24-7 news cycle and everything in your face, from your phone, et cetera. Uh, but I, I actually will say I don't agree that the Fed has to do this. Um, I, I think they could keep quiet a little bit more. Uh, because let's face it, you know, the market's kind of doing their work for them, right? When you see the 10-year go from touching right at 5%, which by the way, as a technician, since my dad taught me when I was a teenager, 40 something years ago, uh, I get a special chuckle when I say, oh, the 10 year is going to go to 5%. Then let's see what happens. Why? Because it's a freaking round number. <laughs> uh, and uh, that and trend lines and support and resistance, all the basics of technical analysis, you know, it 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 all comes through. And as we'll discuss, I think before we're done here, uh, there's a few major markets that are at technical points. So, um, you know, as people look into this year, uh, think about it this way. Let's don't let the recency effect get in the way of making cogent, responsible, disciplined, unemotional decisions in 2024 and beyond. Why do I say that, Rena? Because we've had two years in the stock market where they basically netted out to zero return. Uh, if you look at what the major averages did, in 2022 plus 2023 through you know maybe 10 days uh eight trading days left in the year something like that they basically netted out to almost zero uh the uh, or worse uh small caps are down merging markets are down uh, you know 10 to 15 percent uh, as of recently over the last two years everything else it's flat but the problem is this recency effect makes it so that people want to look at what just happened and ignore that 2023 was simply the year where we got back to even. You know, it's kind of like your sports team having an awful start to the season. They recover and win a lot of games in a row. Uh, but all they've really done is get back to 500. So 
that that I I I think is it. And so again, kind of going, uh, if you don't mind, I'll um, I'll walk through some of these key decision points from a chart standpoint. So. Uh, and I'll pull them up one at a time here. So I'm looking at the S&P 500 right now, uh, approaching all-time highs. You know, I don't use phrases like bull market and bear market very often, and I won't hear. All I'll say is I don't think that there is a, a significant, long-term, meaningful trend change in the S&P until it breaks through 4,800 and does so with gusto and with sustainability. Um, what has happened recently, and I think this is because uh, uh, we technicians are not uh, sort of lonely voodoo artists like we were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, everybody seems to be a technician. Everybody's calling for the same levels, um, which is why you know that groupthink is something I think as an investor you can really take advantage of by not following the crowd, but knowing what the crowd is following, if you will. So uh, you know, S&P 500 has rallied all the way up. Uh, it's 4760 as we're speaking. Um, I don't want to see 4800. Uh, I don't want to see 4850, 4870, and then right back down two days later. Uh, you know, I want to see uh, a run that looks like it's going to just sort of rip through 4900 to 5000, and then really, really take off. And and I don't discount the possibility that that could happen next year, especially early in the year. Now, if we look over at the NASDAQ, okay, the NASDAQ is right spot on its all-time high. Um, I, uh, I wrote an article uh, recently called, uh, it's, it's the NASDAQ's uh, Formula 409, because 409 rounded is about where it was. Um, and hopefully this will not be as uh, messy as the things you clean up with uh, Formula 409, which is uh, apparently big in the States. I'm not sure if it is uh, across the world, but it's the all-purpose cleaner. So uh, QQQ, uh, again, you know, we're either going to get a rollover here or what I think is probably more likely, call it 60-40 in favor, um, is that uh, we will burst into the new year a la early the year 2000, uh, where the NASDAQ had already ripped higher like it did last year, uh, or this year, I should say. Um, uh, and, and by the way, quick aside, the NASDAQ was down about, a, in round numbers, the NASDAQ was down about a third of its value last year. It's up about 50%, give or take, this year. So if you do the math, you had $100, it turns into 66 67 and then you increase that 66 by 50%, you're right back at 100. And that's what I was talking about before. So the uh, the cues, uh, you know, one of the scenarios I think is possible for next year is a very 2000-like scenario. That will be awesome for people who can think of investing as weeks to months. If they think of it in terms of years, it is going to be absolutely miserable. And here's why. If history rhymes, it's not going to repeat, but it rhymes, you could see the NASDAQ, I mean, go flying higher. I don't know, put a number, 15, 20, 30, 40% maybe, okay? This is what happened in late 99, early 2000. And then that was it. All the good news was out. And what happened to the NASDAQ from March of 2000 to March of 03? Three down years in a row. 
uh, a total loss of, I don't know, 80%, something like that or more, and three straight down years of at least 30%. I am not predicting that, but I am saying that there is a reasonable possibility as we sit here right now that you could have that kind of, you know, pop and drop type of scenario. Uh, a couple more I'll cover quickly um, because I think they're interesting uh, uh, technically, and I think they help explain. You know, if you, if you don't look at the charts and you're kind of, I think, operating a little bit blindly as an investor. Uh, so IWM. Before you get into the other charts, can you explain to investors that aren't, uh, you know, adept at technical analysis or don't even know why they should be? Can you explain why it's so important to recognize the patterns from a technical perspective? Yes, yes. And I'm so glad you asked it exactly that way, Rena, because this is the overall theme for how I think of investing. Okay. You know, I may be an ETF geek, but you know, I manage money for three decades and and I'm a strategist at heart. So I always kind of look at the bigger picture uh, and then operate within it. Well, what has changed over the last few decades, and especially over the last three years, probably uh, since the pandemic, is that there is a widening gap between what probably should happen. Okay, I can give you a long laundry list of 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 risk factors. Okay, um, you know, starting with. Uh, uh, an overspent consumer in the U.S., which drives so much, and so many other things, and the debt problems. So, uh, you know, there's uh, you have to look at markets now. I think as what should happen logically, and the gap between that and what actually does happen, I think is going to be and has been greater than we've ever seen it. And I just think that's modern markets because they're different participants. So why technicals? Well, uh, this may not be common knowledge to, uh, let's say, the typical you know, stock picker, buy and hold investor, but you're not playing in the same playground that you did for the longest time. So much money has gone into following indexes. you know. And if you're ever wondering why, well, wow, my my, uh, uh, I don't know, biotech stock, uh, just to pick an example out of the air, uh, my biotech stock uh, uh, had a nice quarter. They're doing well. They're fundamentally inexpensive. Uh, why aren't they getting any love? Why are they falling? Well, it could be because there's a lot of money indexed to biotech, and they're one of the biggest stocks in the index. So if money has decided it's leaving biotech for whatever reason, your biotech stock is going down with the ship. And this is what happens. This is how you get uh, early 2020. S&P falls 33% in five weeks, nowhere to hide. And it's that nowhere to hide thing that I think should have people hypersensitive to, again, how I use technicals. I don't use it to try to predict the future. I use technicals primarily to figure out where major risk is, because I believe as an investor that you can make money on anything at any time. Uh, it's not right or wrong. It's it's how much risk is attached to the reward that you are seeking. So, um, and there's so many factors like the indexation, hedge funds, even the emergence of 
uh, uh, day traders and zero uh, uh, DTE options, days to expiration, okay? There's just so many more types of movements going on uh, because of how markets have uh, modernized. And that brings opportunity for sure, but it also brings risk and it makes it so that buy and hold, it's okay, but it should be buy and hold, but keep your eyes peeled at every turn. Um, so I hope that that answered the inquiry. Yeah, I think it did. I, I think it also dovetails nicely with your two po like main points of focus with the ETF space and technical analysis. It seems that the the preponderance of the ETF space, the growth there is in direct correlation to why we need technical analysis now more than ever. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And 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 frankly, uh, once again, uh, completely unrehearsed, you you kind of led right into where I was going to go next, which is uh, the small caps, mm -hmm. um, you know, subject of much discussion. So uh, it's made here's people the happy. It's made people sad. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And at the same time, by the way, that is actually true, because uh uh, I mean, just that, you know, look, there's a bunch of academic studies going back. Uh, a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, sunk their teeth into, uh, and there was a very, uh, big prominent, um, uh, uh, mutual fund company that's now, uh, moving their way rapidly into ETFs. Uh, one of the, the sort of later adopters of that, uh, and, uh, and they prided themselves on small cap value is, you know, the best thing ever for the last 50 to 70 years. Well, I would say, I don't think we did everything from our phones for most of the last 50 to 70 years. Uh, and I don't think that, um, uh, people were using leverage the way they use it. And the options market was much more, uh, uh, nascent than it is now. So anyway, back to the, you know, the, the small caps, okay? When people just say, oh, okay, uh, are small caps a good investment? Well, it, <laughs> the usual answer in investing, it depends. So I'm looking at IWM, which used to be the dominant, the only name in small cap investing tracking the Russell 2000 index. So IWM is the symbol, and uh, it has basically traded between 160 and 200 um, continuously going all the way back to looks like April of 22. And that's pretty much all it's done for a living is going up and down between 160, 170 and up to 200. Well, guess where it is right now? 200 spot one, eight, $200 and 18 cents as, as I'm speaking. So do I know where it's going to go next it is surely overvalued, but, uh, I learned a long time ago that overvalued can kind of get pinned, as they say, in, in technical parlance, and, and it can stay overvalued. So I don't know if IWM is going to take off and hit an all-time high, which is more than 20% above where it is now, or if it's just going to do the same thing that it always does, kind of like Charlie Brown and, the foot, and, and Lucy in the football, the analogy I use a lot. Um, just when you think it's going to break out to, to a new level above 200, Back it goes. They pull the football away and you're back down to 160, which last I checked is a 20% decline. So this is like one of those, it could go 20% either way, Rena. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as a technician, 
I'm not going to just go and say, well, uh, it's fundamentally cheap or I like these stocks in it or whatever, or, oh, I'm not going to worry about the long term because you don't want to start out 20% in the hole because 20 could beget 40, could beget 50. Um, The other thing about small caps, before I wrap up the the small cap portion of the show, is uh, this is, and and, uh, uh, bleep this out if you need to, okay, but uh, you know, there's small cap and there's small crap. And IWM, and I'm certainly not the first one or the last one to say it, but IWM, which a lot of people blindly follow and say, okay, I want small cap exposure. Let me plug this in for X percent of my portfolio. Well, something like 40% of the companies in the Russell 2000 uh, have big debt issues, um, may not survive a period of high interest rates, uh, a lot of small banks in there, things like that. So it's, it's, it, and, and by the way, that's why they've done so well recently because it was, ah, these things aren't going to go to heck. Okay. Uh, a relief rally, but where has it gotten you technically just back to where it's been four or five times since April of last year. So it's meaningless except to short-term traders because all it's doing is confining itself to its own little box, its own little range. And in the small cap space, there are other places to look. You know, IJR is uh, is a cleaner um, uh, uh, you know, companies generally have to be more profitable uh, to, to be part of the small cap 600, uh, SP small cap 600, and IJR is one of several ETFs that cover that. And in the small cap space, the one that has kind of been my go-to uh, over the years uh, is symbol C-A-L-F, CAF, uh, which uh, is much more about uh, cash flow, financial stability, if you will, finding quality in companies that aren't the Magnificent Seven, because, you know, the Mag Seven are quality. Question is, you know, can they go up forever uh, like helium? You were saying in one of your uh, 12 days of of the markets, let's call it, uh, you know, you were mentioning the crazy growth that the ETF space has seen. You mentioned a few ETFs just, just now in terms of how you can, you know, kind of best take advantage of things. In terms of the growth of ETFs and also how you're strategizing around, you know, uh, having having uh weight in the market what where do you think investors are or do you think it depends on kind of what type of investor it is what type of timeline they have in terms of are the bigger ETFs the way to go uh the indexed ETFs are the you know covered call ETFs or the more undercovered ETFs that you also cover it, it, does it does it have to do with timeline horizon? Does it have to do with, as you've mentioned before on the podcast, in terms of where the investor is in their lifespan? Kind of, can you talk it through a little bit? Sure, sure. And and now, I mean, you've you just thrown me what they uh, call in American baseball a fat pitch, because for twenty seven years I was a fiduciary advisor. Fiduciary meaning you know, client comes first, their needs, everything's customized, personalized, and. And I was not a financial planner. I was a, a money manager who, you know, could could find people to help with the financial planning. And during that time, everything was focused on 
client A versus client B versus client C, and they were all different, even though they had enough in common so that I could run kind of a model portfolio, but adjust it for each person. Now, fast forward three years since I sold my advisory practice and and retired, haha, quote unquote, okay. Um, now focus on research and ETFs and education and you know all the etfyourself.com stuff that we're doing. The the uh, I don't want to make the mistake that I see and hear so many people making. I mean, last night I was on on you know on social media and I was just kind of watching what people were saying. And uh, you know, the more brash analysts out there, uh, their attitude is basically. Well, uh, I think they're talking about T bills. Well, um, uh, uh, you're you're a moron for staying in T bills. Well, what if you got so much money that you know five percent, four percent, whatever? Okay, and and maybe you only need to take I don't know ten, twenty percent of your portfolio uh, and put it at risk. I mean, you know. Stock market average is what eight percent a year, long term, something like that. Uh, and and you know you're almost two thirds of the way, uh, you know, in T bills or similar. I mean, I, and and again, th that's an example of how it's so personalized, but so much of the industry makes it so that oh, everybody should be doing this, everybody should do be doing that. So that's that's a long way of saying everybody needs to if if here's here's i think there's a major issue which if there were a way to solve it with education in 2024 sign me up because i think the number one thing that the self-directed investor needs to learn is that if you are a self-directed investor if you are not using somebody that's in the business that i was in for 27 years and been at it for three years okay the advisory business professional advisors who are fiduciaries uh, not brokers and salespeople and product pushers. If you are really a self-directed investor, then be self-directed. Don't simply say, oh, you said this was a buy. Uh, it didn't go up. You know, okay. Cause that's what that's where I think there's such a major miscommunication on all platforms. Okay. I mean, including the one that that, you know, we're both uh, active and part of. Um you know, the, I think, I think the first thing that every investor needs to do, come up with a philosophy. What is it you're trying to do? Second, come up with a process. How do you want to go ahead and do it? Third, come up with a universe, a watch list, a list of possibilities, like a sports team saying, okay, some of these people are starting players. Some of them are on the bench, but ready to go in the game whenever we need them. And uh, and the rest are kind of in our system, in our minor league system, if you will. And then everything else, not part of the organization right now. And I think that watch list, as I call it, or depth chart, uh, is is so important. But you can't just do it out of thin air. This is where you have to go do your own research and come up with your own philosophy. And then you can be as opinionated as you want within your philosophy. My philosophy starts with ABL, avoid big loss. Okay. Well, what is big? Big will be different to you than 10 other people we could bring into the room now. Okay, I'll, I'll take myself as an example. ETFyourself.com. The whole thing was set up so that if people want to see what I'm doing with my own money 
and explaining it to them in detail as I make the moves, that's what they can sign up for. And if they, because, you know, what else can you, unless you are managing money for other people, uh, you can only have your own views. So I start everything with ABL, avoid big loss. What is big loss? Well, uh, in the accounts where I'm more of an investor, um, you know, once I'm down 10% in something, the alarm bells start going off, not because 10% is the end of the world, but because if I lose 10% in something, then I have to start to question whether or not I bought it correctly. Because, you know, there's an old Wall Street expression uh, that, that you don't make money when you sell, you make money when you buy. Buying inexpensively enough so that you give yourself a, a cushion. Um, uh, uh, Benjamin Graham, the famous value investor, called it uh, margin of safety. So, you know, that so to me, 10% is kind of that level. But if I'm doing something that's kind of like a trade, uh, which I, you know, I do frequently and I, you know, run portfolios like that for myself, I say, you know, in a trade, I believe that I'm catching it. I mean, it's not timing per se, but what I'm saying is uh, think of it this way. Uh, on a trade, I'm saying, all right, I have to believe pretty strongly that the next 5% move is going to be up, not down. If it's down, then I have to question my decision. When it comes to a, an investment, longer-term position, uh, at 10%, any investment that you consider, if you have the ability, I mean, I created something called the Roar Score, which does this, but you have a, uh, you look at it and you say, okay, what is the next 10% move? likely to be and how likely is it to be it's never a hundred percent or zero as much as people on uh you know social media would 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 convince you that things are guaranteed nothing is so uh you know the next 10 percent move if i really really think it's going to be up and not down well that nudges me toward that well what if there's 20 different ETFs that I'm looking at, and they all look that way. Well, now I have to do a little more research. So this is all part of what I call process. And then the last part, you know, after philosophy and, and process and uh, strategy, all the way down to the part that people focus 98% of their time on when they should focus probably 20% of their time on, which is security selection and, and when. Um, and blanketing all of that is the fact that, uh, uh, again, I mean, 60-year-old semi-retired, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'll be 60 next year, but whatever, 60-year-old semi-retired, uh, you know, working by choice, et cetera, that leads me to uh, when rates went up the way they did, uh, you know, T-bills became my best friend. Why? Because it soaks up a lot of the volatility and danger and you keep it out of harm's way. If you can, I think we talked about this the last time, if I'm not mistaken, you know, uh, just put simple numbers to it. You know, if, if uh, I don't know, two thirds of your money is earning four and a half percent, okay, that's 3% contribution to your total return. The other 30 year portfolio takes that 3% that you've already locked in across the total and pushes it up or down. But, you know, if you're comfortable enough, so that you say, all right, uh, you know, I don't want to lose more than X. Well, you can do the math. And I know I'm, I'm explaining this a lot faster 
Uh, hopefully people don't have to go and replay this part like five times, but, uh, and I'm happy to write about it for Seeking Alpha if, 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 if folks think that, uh, you know, it's better off kind of laid out, but that, that is it for me. It's, it's, you know, people have to do their own research and they have to be self-directed, responsible investors. Self-directed investing is not as simple as saying, I will just pick out a few people that got something right one time uh, or two times and they're the hot dot. Um, that's why, uh, uh, you know, there's so much indecision and turnover in the publishing business uh, uh, it, because people need to need to have an, an anchor they need to have a home base that drives all their decisions for me it's abl yeah and i think knowing who to uh look towards in terms of guidance who to reach out to in terms of help who to uh who, who best to use in terms of uh you know addendums to your own research and kind of self-directed path uh rob i i appreciate you laying all this out for us and and crystallizing and clarifying you have Sun Garden Investment Publishing on Seeking Alpha. You have ETFyourself.com. Many other places that we can read you and uh, hear you. Anything else that you want to share with investors, feel free to add other places that people can reach you. But anything else that we missed here? Uh, all I would say, and, and thank you so much, is always just a pleasure to be able to you know, speak my mind. Uh, and 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 hope that people connect with it uh, in in whatever way is meaningful for them. Uh, I think that twenty twenty four, it's kind of like the tiebreaker, right? We had twenty twenty two, which you know kind of stunk for stocks and bonds. We had twenty twenty three, which got better as the year went on, even though the stock market was uh, fairly concentrated uh uh so looking into next year look there are pockets of opportunity it is the strangest environment to start a year 2024 that i've ever seen going back to the 1980s strange because i think there's incredible uncertainty but uncertainty also breeds immense opportunity just don't think it has to come from I'm going to buy the spy or the cues or a couple of stocks and and be done with it. Uh, it will come from a wide variety of places and having the flexibility and the accessibility to invest in a wide variety of themes, segments, et cetera. And that's why I love the ETFs. If you're a serious investor, here are three reasons you should be using Seeking Alpha. We're the only platform with coverage of all significant stocks and ETFs, the only platform providing news analysis, ratings, and data on stocks and ETFs, and we have the highest quality community of real investors discussing stocks and ETFs. Find out more at SeekingAlpha.com slash subscriptions. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.